Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. This episode will be about, uh, in this in the continuing series uh, with Dr. Stephen Blank, will concern uh, commanding the seas on the Silk Road, China's manist strategy in the Indian Ocean. And I'd just like to briefly read um, biographies for Dr. Stephen Blank and for Dr. Richard Weitz, who will be joining us. As you know, and from previous episodes, Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He is also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Now, joining us this time for the very first time will be Dr. Richard Weitz, who is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Political Military Analysis at the Hudson Institute. His current research includes regional security developments relating to Europe, Eurasia, and East Asia, as well as U.S. foreign and defense policies. Before joining Hudson in 2005, Dr. Weitz worked for several other academic and professional research institutions in the U.S. Department of Defense, where he received an award for excellence from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. As an introduction to this episode, I would like to read my editorial published in November of 2017, which I find particularly relevant still today. Writing once again from Washington, D.C. for this issue and through the prism of a particularly polarized Washington, which is facing the aftermath of two massive hurricanes that hit Texas and Florida, Harvey and Irma respectively, I was very attentive to hear General James Mattis speak as he stood in front of the White House in a solemn proclamation following Kim Jong-un's 50 megaton hydrogen bomb explosion which caused a 6.3 Richter scale earthquake. Invited on France 24 in French on August 10, 2017, I gave an overview of what would be involved should North Korea want to strike Guam or, as it since has done, fly twice over Japan and land its missiles in its territorial waters in an attempt to show force and rattle sabers in the region. After two resolutions by the UN Security Council that were both voted to unanimously punish the regime of Rocket Man, we can consider the options limited, given that North Korea is all but officially a nuclear power, and to go to war with a nuclear power would kill millions, i.e. mutually assured destruction or MAD. Considering that half of the world's trade takes place along the Pacific Rim and is developing, be it through the Trans-Pacific Partnership or through China's Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Outside of nuclear war, there are other risks that are fragilizing the ecosystem, the economy, and its sustainability, such as overfishing and illegal fishing, 
human pollution, and the plastic continent. On the environmental and climate front, there have been and will be more typhoons, hurricanes as a result of global climate change that in turn will require adequate and timely crisis responses to increasing humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. This is all compounded by an open and ongoing arms race, exacerbated by trends in military spending as per the CIPRI report on military spending published in April 2017. Between 2007 and 2016, China had the biggest growth in military spending with an increase of 118%, followed by Russia, 87%, and India, 54%. Just looking at Asia, we can notice an increase in defense spending of 9% from $326 billion to $356 billion from 2013 to 2015. Not only is China building artificial islands to serve 3,000 acre aircraft carriers, they are also building radar and missile systems, as well as airfields on these islands. North Korea has doubled its military spending to about $10 billion from 2013 to 2015. Kim Jong-un knows that only through military might will he be able to retain his grip on power internally and maintain some level of influence in the region. Therefore, let's consider the facts that engaging in nuclear North Korea and the military exchange might bring to bear and how it would affect the region and how it could divide the international community. Number one, nearly 100,000 oil tankers go through the Malacca Strait each year. Two, nine of the 10 biggest ports are in China or the region. Three, five of the declared nuclear nations are in the region. Four, seven of the 10 most powerful military bases are in the region. Five, the overall militarization of the region, citing from Cypri again, North Korea has launched 85 ballistic missiles. Six, China's construction and outfitting of several atolls. Seven, the US allies in the region are Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, and Taiwan. Eight, unanimous condemnations of North Korea launching 85 ballistic missiles. United Nations Security Council Resolution 2371 on August 5, 15 to zero. And finally, nine, Council of Europe added nine people and four entities to the list. I still remember Dmitry Medvedev's, Medvedev's statement on, at the 2016 Munich Security Conference when he said that we are in a new Cold War and that this year, 2016, reminded him of 1962. And as Admiral Stavridis so aptly pointed out in this article in Foreign Policy, and I quote, it's not so much the strength that we have to fear, but the weakness and what will happen if the regime fails, the country implodes, to create massive destabilization on the Korean Peninsula. Everything that the U.S. troop presence on the 38th parallel has been trying to avoid for the last five decades. Will this crisis lead to the acceptance of South Korea and Japan having their own nuclear defense forces? 
they are both presently under the protection of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Another aspect of this crisis that has not been mentioned explicitly is the conditions of the applicability of Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. An attack on one is attack on all. How will North Korea's powerful neighbors to the North, Russia and China, deal with this latest crisis or threat? Have we gone past the diplomatic phase and which power centers or capitals will be involved, pulled in to join or mount against the current measures being initiated against North Korea? Has North Korea been able to develop its nuclear program and weapons during the Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama's presidencies? With a now confirmed nuclear capacity, only possible to have acquired in isolation, under sanction, under wraps, how effective were the international community's policies vis-a-vis -vis North Korea? The largest question looming is not only what will the cost of a war be, but what other geopolitical and geoeconomic consequences will this crisis have on other regions in the world? All this is playing out on the backdrop of a very divisive, polarized Washington, D.C., where U.S. President Donald Trump is trying to steer the country in the right direction as the support of his base diminishes on his recent stances on domestic issues, such as the wall and DACA, as the Republican Party becomes more divided, as the Democratic Party leads the obstruction in the House and the Senate and is actively motivating and encouraging weekly protests. Will the president's overtures to Chuck and Nancy support his perpetual search for self-preservation? Will the economy continue to grow at 3% of GDP as the New York Stock Exchange's race past 22,000 points? Optimism is back. Jobs are being created. Consumers are spending again. Wages are going up. But what is worrying is that the occupation in the workforce is at its lowest levels since 1977 at 62.7%. With Brexit and challenges facing Europe as detailed by the president of the European Commission, Jean-Paul Juncker, in the State of the Union of Europe, with Russia leading the offensive against ISIS in uh, Syria and with China flexing both its military and economic muscles in the Pacific, are we not seeing, once again, the quest for spheres of influence by the great three powers? Was Dmitry Medvedev correct in seeing a new Cold War coming? Welcome to a new conference with Dr. Stephen Blank. We're so pleased today to be joined by Dr. Richard Weitz. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning. I'll just thank you so much for joining me. What I would like to do very briefly is, of course, remind our viewers of the title of this discussion, which is Commanding the Seas on the Silk Road, China's Manist Strategy in the Indian Ocean. I would just like to uh, read the biographies, very brief biographies, uh, of each of our guests. Dr. Weitz uh, is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Political Military Analysis at the Hudson Institute. His current research includes regional security developments relating to Europe, Eurasia, and East Asia, 
as well as U.S. foreign and defense policies. Before joining Hudson in 2005, Dr. Weitz worked for several other academic and professional research institutions and the United States Department of Defense, where he received an award for excellence from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us today. And Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He's also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the United States Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to see you again, Stephen, and thank you so much for bringing in a few colleagues on this series of interviews that we're doing on, on Zoom uh, to be later available on um, podcast. Uh, so I would just like to invite our guests, if they would like to submit a question, to please do so in the chat box uh, down on the control bar at the bottom of your screen. I'd just like to start today, gentlemen, uh, with a brief introduction that I found, and I'll be taking extracts from The Diplomat, uh, by an article written by Francis P. Sempa in 2014. And I'd like to quote him. In his memoirs, From Sail to Steam, Mann created his reading of Theodore Mommsen's six-volume History of Rome for the insight that sea power was the key to global predominance. In The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, Mann reviewed the role of sea power in the emergence and growth of the British Empire. In the book's first chapter, he described the sea as a great highway and a wide common with well-worn trade routes over which men pass in all directions. He identified several narrow passages or strategic choke points, the control of which contributed to Great Britain's command of the seas. He famously listed six fundamental elements of sea power, geographical position, physical conformation, extent of territory, size of population, character of the people, and character of government. Based largely on these factors, Mann envisioned the United States as the geopolitical successor to the British Empire. Like Germany before the First World War, China in the 21st century has embraced Mann. Naval War College professor, professors Toshi Yoshihara and James Holmes have examined the writings of contemporary Chinese military thinkers and strategists in this regard in their important work, Chinese Naval Strategy in the 21st Century. Turn to Man. With regard to Man's elements of sea power, China is situated in the heart of East Central Asia and has a lengthy sea coast, a huge population, a growing economy, growing military and naval power, and at least for now, a stable government. China's political and military leaders have not hidden their desire to supplant the United States as the predominant power in the Asia Pacific region. So uh, gentlemen, as you know, and as these questions have been sent to you, I have a series of questions I'd like to um, uh, discuss with you today. So I'll start with the first question, which will open up our discussions. So how is China now the dignified successor of the United States? And does it fulfill these six manist criteria of sea power? 
Well, it, it wants to be the successor of the United States. There's no doubt that China wants to be global number one. But I don't know that there's anything particularly dignified about its uh, uh, manner of going about this because it does so in a rather heavy-handed, uh, brusque way, as all of its neighbors can attest. And we see this not only in the Indian Ocean, uh, which is what we're going to be talking about, but we see it in the Arctic. They just asked Finland for an airbase near mm -hmm. the Arctic. Uh, we see it in the East China Sea, the South China Sea. Uh, so the uh, Chinese pursuit of hegemony or primacy or whatever you want to call it is uh, quite overt quite multi-dimensional and is taking shape right before our eyes. And it's not, as I said, dignified at all. It's in your face almost. And uh, it's a kind of uh, rhetoric of this is our time and you are in decline, which uh, clearly has rattled a lot of governments, not just the United States, but governments in the, what is now called the Indo-Pacific, which is a Japanese term, not an American invention, by the way. Interesting. Well, we'll get to that. So, Stephen, um, you, you have you put out a lot of things for me to comment on. So I'll just make a few and give our, our, our listeners a, a bit of uh, statistics and numbers to give us some depth of this. So China is understandably concerned about protecting its sea lanes and the conduits that bring in raw materials, 9.3 million barrels of oil per day, with 44% of Chinese oil imports coming from the Middle East in 2018, and which simultaneously deliver finished products to Africa and Europe. 20% of China's GDP comes from exports. Strategists call these sea lines of communications, SLOC, S-L-O-C, and Beijing wants to protect them from threats in peacetime and against hostile powers in times of tension or war. It is a well-established fact that the People's Liberation Army Navy, P-L-A-N, plan, has been sailing in the Indian Ocean far more frequently in the recent years, compounded by fears that Beijing is seeking to establish new naval bases on the periphery of this ocean. Yet, I guess, Stephen, you can answer this for me. Is China really trying to dominate the Indian Ocean? There are those who would argue that is the case. My my sense is that the Chinese realize that the Indian Ocean is not their number one or even number two priority. Okay. But uh, number one is the East China Sea, and then number two is the South China Sea. The further you go afield, the harder it becomes to sustain primacy. But, but what they are certainly have aiming to do is to have a at least a blocking capacity, capability or capacity so that nobody and no hostile coalition can uh, dominate the Indian Ocean. Uh, they are obsessed with what they call the Malacca dilemma that hostile ship uh, naval powers, that's the United States and or India, uh, plus maybe Australia, can block the Straits of Malacca or other key waterways in the Indian Ocean and thus deprive China of vital energy imports at a time of crisis. So what they are trying to do is project power all over the place in the Indian Ocean, neutralize India, which believes and has always believed that the Indian Ocean is its, if you like, sphere of, dom of influence and mm -hmm. prevent anybody from dominating. They are also, because of their global economic reach, 
now trying to project power into the Middle East and Africa. I don't know that they think they can dominate the Indian Ocean, but what they want to make sure of is that nobody else can. And that's the least. I mean, there's a good argument here. Uh, and it may well be the case that they do want ultimately to dominate it, but they don't have that capability and they're not going to have it for some time. But they do have the capability to make sure that it will be far too expensive for anybody else to do so. Well, I'd just like to follow up with some information that I've done some research on. So this plan has rather a modest presence in the Indian Ocean, especially compared to powers like India or US, if you just underline. Plans limited air defense and anti-submarine warfare, well, warfare capacity. And finally, China's rather limited logistics or sustainment infrastructure along the Indian Ocean periphery. Now, can we talk about, uh, Stephen, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, China's defense capacity? Well, China's defense capacity is growing at an astonishing rate overall. Indian Ocean, as we said, is not the number one priority. Nevertheless, they are attempting to deal with the problems you talked about. Uh, I, I want to emphasize the uh, ASW, anti-submarine and logistics. To yes. do ASW and logistics, you need to have bases. That's what the Belt and Road Infrastructure Project, BRI, right. is all about. Right. Now, it is very clear that they are looking for bases as well as ports throughout the Indian Ocean into the Middle East. Uh, as far north as uh, Piraeus in Greece, Haifa in Israel, and, and yes. so on. So, what they are trying to do is build a capacity so that they can keep ships in the Indian Ocean on a permanent basis at these ports uh, do the repair and maintenance and uh, energy sustainment uh, logistics and so on. It's very interesting in this con context. Six months ago, Iran announced that it was on the verge of a deal with China and that China would have a base uh, in Iran on the Indian Ocean, in the Gulf, Persian Gulf, and uh, other access. Nothing has been heard since then. Uh, this may have been a bluff to force China into signing something like that. If it was, it failed. But the point mm. is, clearly bespeaks a Chinese ambition to project power in the Indian Ocean and to overcome the kinds of logistic difficulties and energy problems and air defense that you talked about. Because if you have permanent bases, you can then build out air defense. You can have the logistic facilities necessary to have submarines and power projection capability on hand permanently. All right. Well, we know that it's improving uh, with the Type uh, 052D destroyer, which has 64 vertical launch missile cells that can fire missiles against multiple enemy aircraft. However, their first four-way, uh, four-way, I'm sorry, with the, it was in the Gulf of Aden task force, did not occur until very recently, Stephen, in May 2019. So, already one of the six, one of six births of Djibouti's. Uh, commercial Dorale multi-purpose board is reserved now for use by the PLA. Now, I'd like to just move forward, and you did mention something that uh, intrigued me, and I'd like to get um, Richard's take on this. So from a strategic point of view, how important was the renaming or the shift in defense priorities for the U.S. Japan that became the Indo-Pacific region? The 2018 National Defense Strategy, the first of its kind in a decade, acknowledges Pacific challenges and signals America's resolve and lasting commitment to the Indo-Pacific. Right, so over the 
you'd say almost two decades, we've seen a steadily growth in Indian U.S. defense and strategic ties. Um, as your, your, your audience knows, during the Cold War, India was nominally not aligned, but sort of slanted closer to Russia on many regional security questions and got almost all its weapons from the Soviet Union. Um, and But since then, the Indians have sought to diversify their weapon suppliers. They've got some from Europe, some from Israel, but U.S. has particularly been rising. Um, in addition, we've seen a range of Indian-U.S. Uh, defense exercises. They've gone from single service, occasional drills, to regular routine exercises involving many services. We've seen them bring in other countries as well. Um, and so, in a way, you could say that the redesignation of the, the, the Pacific Theater or the, the Asia-Pacific Theater into the India-Pacific sort of was a recognition of reality. Um, something supported by bipartisan forces in the U.S. and um, and a concept that it actually, as Stephen mentioned, been raised by by others, the Japanese in particular, before. Um, and I think that this is, you know, the fact that the Trump the Biden administration has not even raised the issue of revisiting that shows that this is something that's going to be a, a enduring feature in U.S. defense policy going forward. Certainly, so. If I may just uh, continue with a little bit of commentary, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command then seeks to strengthen the bonds across the region and is a cornerstone of, and I quote, a region open to investment and free, fair, and reciprocal trade, not bound by any nation's predatory economics or threat of coercion for the Indo-Pacific has many belts and many roads. And I, this quote comes from General Mattis in 2018. Uh, which he said, alluding to China's one belt, one road policy for the region. Now, China is, as you both know, Iran's uh, largest trading partner and leading oil customer. For Beijing, Iran has a strategic location for securing trade routes, while Tehran is also an important partner in the region outside the circle of American allies. Both countries show the view that the U.S.-led world order is undesirable. So how does this affect the U.S. policy shift and affect Sino or Sino-Iranian relations? I would say there, there are two factors we need to consider. First, mm -hmm. um, with respect to Iran, we've seen radical changes in U.S. policy uh, on the, in recent years. So. Um, in a way, India has been more recipient of that than, than an instigator. So we've seen that the Indians uh, have developed uh, important uh, economic ties with Iran as well as, as like the Chinese, particularly they, they get energy. But then we saw with the Trump administration taking a much harder line in Iran, India being forced to cut back on those. And, now is trying to rebuild the, the economic ties based on the opening. But with the second thing I actually want to raise, forget their China, the Chinese themselves have to balance out uh, their, their objectives. Yes, they are, uh, have important economic ties with Iran. Um, this, and this was clearly evident how rapidly the, 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 the um, COVID-19 epidemic spread from China to Iran, given all the, uh, given all the, the air flights between them and so on. And, Iran, um, China at one point was an important military supplier to the Iranians and that may increase, but the Chinese have to balance that with the ties they've developed, particularly also in the economic realm with Saudi Arabia, Israel and others who are concerned about Iranian ambitions. So I think on the whole, the Chinese have approached Iran a bit gingerly. 
um, as you know, a bit more the, the rhetoric often exceeds the reality. Okay, um, Stephen, did you want to weigh in, or can I ask you the next que next question about how can China balance its relationship with Iran against its ties with the U.S.? Well, the Chinese have uh, postulated that the United States is the main enemy, so they will will try to balance that way. Um, Iran needs China much more than China needs Iran. And it's very clear that uh, Iran needs Chinese diplomatic support now in its campaign to gain the freedom to uh, break out of the JCPOA. Uh, they don't have the power to leverage China. It works the other way. Uh, this uh, gambit with the 25-year treaty that we just that I mentioned earlier is an example. The Chinese didn't say anything, but they, nothing's happened in six months. There's no treaty, there's no base. Nevertheless, they're getting diplomatic support from China to some degree. So the Chinese will continue to be able to uh, deal with this problem by maintaining a posture of hostility towards the United States, but making it clear that no, no settlement of the Iran pro uh, problem is possible without it being consulted and taking apart. And secondly, it will, Iran will have no choice but to ensure that China does uh, support it. They'll have to give China concessions in order to maintain, maintain that support. So that's basically the balance that will come out. All right, um, let's go uh, to one of my final questions, I believe, because we're time goes so quickly when we discuss these uh, very interesting subjects. Um, so let's talk about the China-Russia collaboration and what could be coming out of, you know, this um, sort of multipolar or democratic and anti-democratic uh, regimes. Are you seeing, or either of you seeing any movements toward, you know, this coalition of democracies against the coalition of authoritarian countries? Uh, can I just get your take on that? Sure, like the, the Russians, and, 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 and so like the Soviets, the Russians have been striving to set up this triangle between uh, China, India, and, and, and the, Russia or earlier the Soviet Union. Um, and from their point of view, it makes a lot of sense. They, this is a good counterbalancing coalition to the United States. It's Eurasian-centric and so on. But under Primakov and others, they've just never been able to manage that China-India uh, difference. And that goes back to the Cold War, where um, the, in, in the the Chinese saw the Russian, the Soviets actually tilt towards the Indians in their view and help contribute to the, the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and we've seen the Russians constantly forced to choose between weapon supplies to one country or the other in, in the sense that they are, there's always an issue of which one will get the most advanced system first. They've been moving closer to China and you would think at some point the Chinese are going to put pressure on the Russians to reduce those ties, which are diminishing anyway. Um, but so far the Indians have, have stayed aloof from the coalition, primarily because of differences over China, but also they want to have good ties with the, the U.S. And, and so we've seen, I think it's, it's gonna, it's, I think it'd be difficult for the Russians to, to be able to bridge that gap in the future. And I think more likely they're just gonna throw up their hands inside with China. All right, Stephen. Well, 
I'm on record. I've, I've testified about this and written that I think we see a we're seeing a Russo-Chinese alliance, not a formal alliance, but nonetheless a real alliance. And I'm concerned that the military cooperation between the two parties is growing. And I'm concerned that it may be growing as well in the Indian Ocean. I mean, if this Iranian deal had gone through, Russia would have been a party to a triple entente or understanding with Russia and with Iran and China. We also see that Russia is now trying to project power into the Indian Ocean. It now has a base in Sudan, and it is cultivating other Indian Ocean states like Myanmar. Matter of fact, Defense Minister Shoigu was in Myanmar a week before the coup, and I doubt very much that he and his intelligence teams did not know what was coming about. Furthermore, the deals that Russia's made with Myanmar look very much like the kinds of deals they made with Sudan and other third world countries where they are interested in getting a base as well as making energy deals and arms sales. Um, why Russia wants bases in the Indian Ocean, apart from the, wanting a global status, is by no means clear. But given the cooperation that we see between Russia and Russia now, this could not be a uh, step forward for the West or for India. Because as Richard has pointed out, in the crunch, uh, if Russia is forced to choose between India and China, it has no choice but to choose China. And although it wants to maintain the long-standing friendship with India, um, I think that the trend line is moving towards a weakening, steady weakening of, or attrition even, of that relationship as India comes under greater pressure from China. As a matter of fact, India is under pressure from China, not just militarily up in, in the Himalayas, but China is now launching cyber strikes against India. And China did make a deal with Iran of, to gain railway access and, and, and uh, connection at uh, Chabahar, which is supposed to be the terminus for India's grand design for a northern trade route through Iran and Central Asia to Russia. China stepped in and appears to have cut that off. And this is as part of this, quote, rumored deal that Iran was making with China. That's the only thing that's come out of it. So the Indo-Chinese uh, rivalry is multidimensional. Russia's trying to get into the Indian Ocean. I think Russia and China are allies, and it's not difficult to draw a series of lines from those points that would indicate greater Sino-Russian cooperation. Uh, and in some cases, at India's expense. Richard, any further thoughts on that subject? No, no, I thought Stephen uh, put it well. Okay, all right. Um, any any further thoughts or subjects uh, that you'd like to bring up as we come to the end of this conference, or would you like to make your closing statements, or would you like to bring other points, maybe perhaps that I didn't think about bringing up in this particular subject? Well, there's one. I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative is not just a, an economic development program on a gargantuan scale. It's also a military infrastructure program, and we should be very watching very carefully the growth of Chinese naval and amphibious and power projection capabilities, not and not only military power projection capabilities, because it is clearly trying to build its cap its strength across the Indian Ocean, in all the, in economic as well as military domains, and it's clearly now willing to use cyber power, information power, 
uh, as well. So this is something that we really need to keep an eye on. Okay, Richard. Yeah, I want to share some, uh, if I if I could share some insights that uh, the um, one of my one of my student interns, Muskan Nagpal uh, from India, actually told me last night. She was thinking about what the Biden presidency, how that might differ from the Trump, and she had some, you know, she she had some very interesting thoughts about perhaps there are going to be some more cooperation in the trade and visa issue as, as you know, that was a source of tension between India and the United States under Trump. But the Biden administration may take a harder line on the some of the Indian government's uh, policies in, in, in uh, Kashmir uh, and elsewhere. There may be more of a formation of human rights in both U.S. policy towards India as well as towards uh, China. Um, she also speculated that India is going to benefit from the administration's desire to rely more on non-China sources of, of, of medical supplies and, and so on. But she wasn't sure uh, whether how firmly the Biden administration would stand with India in its land confrontation with China. Um, we know that the Trump administration was apparently very supportive rhetorically and apparently shared some intelligence with the U.S. And then she, like others of us, are wondering what's going to come of the, the quad or the, you know, the new orientation of multilateral structures by the, the, the Biden administration, the summit of democracy and so on. How, how will India fit into that framework? And lastly, if the U.S. is going to try and work more closely with Pakistan, particularly because of the, the imperative of dealing with the Afghan situation, how is that going to affect the dynamic? of India-US relations and China as well, since China may take a, a greater role uh, in Afghanistan going forward. So I just thought those were really insightful comments you shared with me last Absolutely. night. Absolutely. Share with the group. Absolutely, that's, that's very good, thank you. And of course, I guess my final question, you sort of made a nice segue into it is, how does the Biden administration now go forward from the Trump administration as concerns these regional powers uh, Russia, India, China, and if I may put an accent on it, what has the COVID pandemic crisis uh, taught us? Or, uh, you know, you hear a lot about, we're going to now build and do a lot of things in our own countries. We're going to, you know, build factories. We're going to produce our own masks, our own vaccines. Now with the chip crisis, you probably heard about some of the major car manufacturers have come up short. If I could just give very briefly some of your thoughts on has the COVID, this COVID pandemic crisis impacted some of the U.S. Uh, foreign policy stances and how do you see the Biden administration going forward? Well, I think I see the Biden administration trying to do a number of things. One, it will regenerate the domestic base of the American economy. That certainly applies to uh, medical supplies, but it will also uh, apply, as the president has said, to infrastructure and to environmental uh, rescue. And that also means that we're going to see a major move away from hydrocarbons, uh, certainly from coal and oil, which are yesterday's fuels. Uh, we, the transition is to natural gas and to liquefied natural gas, uh, where you, countries don't have it. And, uh, and then the, to renewables, to green sources of energy and their price is coming down. So this trend is probably irresistible. That is going to be a basis uh, 
for influencing uh, international economic policy, certainly energy issues. Secondly, the administration has made it clear that it is going to reinvigorate American alliances. Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin are going to Tokyo to meet with the Japanese and South Koreans. I think uh, we've already had meetings with Europeans, more will take place. And there will be, I think, yeah. a form in the American relationship, if not, though not an alliance as such, uh, because of the hostility to China that's going, that has already taken root and it will develop further in India. Uh, Russia and China, on the other hand, will be uh, adversaries of the U.S. across a, a series of domains, uh, right through the administration, of, you know, barring some fundamental upheaval in world politics. So the answer is that the Biden administration is one, seeking to reinvigorate the economic base of American power, and two, strengthen its alliances in order to strengthen all the other dimensions as well. Uh, and those are fundamental tasks that it will carry out on a global scale. Richard, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, just to add that it, so far, uh, they, India has not been a priority as far as we can tell. So the issues in terms of you know, excluding the focus on domestic policy, even on the focus on foreign policy, uh, we've seen a lot of focus on China, rebuilding ties with Europe and NATO, and new interest in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and sorry, continuing interest in Afghanistan and Iraq, and new interest in Yemen. Um, so India may become one over time, or it may be U.S. policy. India will be a fallout of the U.S. approach to Afghanistan and China. Um, and so that we just can't tell. The latter approach obviously is, is not going to be well well received perhaps by the Indians. I think they would you know, prefer the, 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 the elevated priority they achieved, achieved under some previous administrations. We'll have to see. The administration's early, they're still uh, you know, on it, still haven't confirmed all their people, they're still doing the strategy review. But as yet, we don't see a distinct South Asian approach. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much uh, for this very interesting discussion. I want to thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Stephen Blank and Dr. Richard Weiss, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.